Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Frank Thing, and this is Record Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by William Atkinson, who will be discussing nanotechnology in his new book, Nanocosm. Also, we'll find out how blisters are formed. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grox. I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. How are you doing? Not too bad, Charles. Not too bad. How about you? I'm doing great. It's uh, been a good week so far, uh-huh. and uh, hopefully a great week left to come, yeah. which is good because, uh, you know, we here, our Berkeley Grox, are in the middle of the week. We show you what's before and what's after. Mm-mm. The pivot of the week we are. We're at the uh, the climax, right? <laughs> or is it the minimum? Uh, who knows? <laughs> Here's some good news for those people who need morphine and uh, those painkillers out there. Uh, you know, it's part of the daily regimen of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. Uh, right? Any Yeah, any healthy diet deserves that. Yes, uh, the problem with morphine is it's addictive, even though it's a good painkiller. We have natural painkillers like endorphin or encaphalin, right? Right. But the problem is we can't get them across the uh, the blood-brain barrier. It doesn't get to the nervous system, even though we ingest it. So uh, some some neurochemists are working on a solution to that, and what they're doing is they're taking these peptides, the drugs, and modifying them with some sugar molecules. And I think as um, Bertozzi on the show had told us, a lot of the uh, interactions with the membrane of the cells require sugar protein composite. And by you know glycosylating or putting sugars to these molecules, it seems to enter the barrier much better. I see. So, but uh, will these drugs then still be effective once they've crossed the blood-brain barrier? Now they have all these sugars coated around them. That's the key question. So they've actually been carrying out trials on mice, and it turns out that the mice who received the uh, the sugar-coated encaphalin actually had a better analgesic response than with the morphine. Oh, wow. <clears throat> well, that's uh, certainly encouraging. So uh, maybe it's just the sugar, though. <laughs> maybe it is. A uh, little sugar high. But uh, this work was carried out by Robin Poulton at Arizona, and uh, it's in one of our favorite journals, the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Jacks. Jacks. Okay, and moving on from uh, morphine to other fine drugs that we take for the brain. Uh, Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. I love chemicals. Chemicals are good. Yeah. What's your favorite chemical for the brain? I would say ibuprofen. Ibuprofen. Kills like, the pain. Yeah. Doesn't screw up my liver. <laughs> doesn't screw up my stomach. You know, who needs a liver anyway? But yeah. You don't like the aspirin? Aspirin um, is bad for the stomach, and uh, that other stuff, acetaminophen, is, yeah. uh, it produces pyridine. Pyridines. I think it causes impotence in oh. the long run. Oh, jeez. That's going <laughs> off my shelf right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, but something that might uh, should be on your shelf if you got depression is Prozac. 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 Expensive, isn't it? Uh, I think it is, but uh, some HMOs might cover it. I don't know. Yeah. Just if you're depressed, my depression. Look, if you're depressed, can there be a price on your happiness? I don't think so. Man, you should be a salesman. <laughs> I know. Perfect. Anyway, but so a uh, number of uh, people who suffer from the uh, 
depression. I've been taking Prozac for quite some time, as you know. But it turns out that Prozac may have the added benefit of actually uh, helping uh, preserve uh, some structures in the brain that might be affected during depressive episodes. Really? So you're saying it physically protects the structure of the brain? That's right. That's right. So in, in depressed patients, it's known uh, that certain structures, for, in, for example, or actually specifically the hippocampus, has a diminished size because of uh, the depressive condition. So does this affect long-term or short-term memory? It might. So yeah, the hippocampus, which is involved in short, uh, short-term memory storage and encoding into long-term memory, mm-hmm. it certainly is affected somewhat, and so that might explain some of it. But the interesting thing about this is that Prozac, uh, when taken, actually restores some of the volume of hippocampus. Wow. So it's kind of kind of intriguing. And it actually helps uh, boost uh, levels of this thing called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So it's, it's quite interesting because uh, it might help uh, neurons to grow. Wow. Yeah. Cool, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this is a cool study. It was carried out by psychiatrist Yvette Shalane at Washington University in St. Louis. And it's published in the recent edition of the American Journal of Psychiatry. So, Charles, how's your zone diet going? Uh, getting enough exercise with that? It's it's great, in fact. Uh, you can't beat the 40-30-30, my friend. And do you take caffeine with that? Uh, in fact, I don't. Really? But there's a new study that suggests that uh, it might be helpful with, with exercise. Is that right? A group of researchers in Australia found out that if you take coffee before you exercise, your stamina increases by 30%. So hmm. you can keep exercising, running, or whatever you're doing for 30% more time. Oh, is that right? Right, without feeling t- as tired. Oh, okay. Well, I, I imagine. But caffeine's also a diuretic, so... <laughs> yes, that's true. I, I think uh, if you're running on a treadmill and you have to go to the bathroom, that might ruin your, your workout. <laughs> right. Apparently, you don't burn any fat if you don't exercise <laughs> Yeah, well, just the caffeine. <laughs> kind of goes without saying, but maybe it needs to be published as well. <laughs> oh, well, so... Anyways, uh, this was uh, recently uh, published in the, um, the BBC News. BBC News? Yes. <laughs> you can't beat that for, you know, scientific uh, accuracy. <laughs> Finally, uh, moving on from caffeine to uh, quantum dots. Quantum dots. Wow, so tiny. They're tiny and they're small and they're dot-like. We can make atomic weapons with them, right? <laughs> uh, that's perhaps one of the many things, taking over the world with quantum dots. But uh, until such time, people have been trying to use these things for semiconductor, actually, computing devices. Oh, you mean like quantum computers? Quantum computers, yeah. Uh-huh. So these quantum t- dots can hold what's called spin information. Okay. So electrons have a spin like a top, right? Right. But a big problem with uh, designing these devices is that the spin basically just kind of dis- dissipates. Oh, so it loses its coherence. Yeah, somehow. and you can't sort of transfer the information from one dot to the other. Right, right. Um, so that's the big problem. But a number of researchers have been working on this, and recently, a group at uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, led by Min Wang and David Auschlem, have found a new way of uh, transferring that information. And what they've done is basically they've tethered quantum dots together using benzene rings. Oh, using benzene rings. Yeah, so they basically just hook the quantum dots together, a little benzene bridge, uh-huh. and that basically allows the spins to hop uh, quite readily and keep their coherent information. Wow, talk yeah. about entanglement. It's pretty pretty darn entangled, I would say. It's pretty cool. And uh, the interesting thing about this is that it's able to do this at uh, temperatures much higher than previously uh, found. Are we talking about room temperature here? Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's a 20% efficiency at room temperature. It's amazing. When it's uh, at 12% efficiency near absolute zero, so it's actually going up. Because I, I believe some of the earlier work done with these, uh, these spin systems, they tend to degrade at even like below the temperature of liquid nitrogen. Right, right. So this is, this is is very, very significant work, and uh, it's clear that there will be other people using it, modifying it, taking it to its new extremes. Cool. And if anyone wants to know more? Oh, you can take a look at this. this is the uh, recent edition of Science. 
And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, William Atkinson will join us to talk about nanotechnology in his new book, Nanocosm. So stay tuned. several scientists talk about the technical aspects of nanotechnology. Well, joining us today is William Atkinson, who's going to tell us some of the more societal impacts that nanotechnology may bring. Mr. Atkinson is the author of a recent book, Nanocosm, and he's the president of Draco Communications. Mr. Atkinson, thank you for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. My pleasure. So first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your book and what nanocosm means? I had thought that I coined the word nanocosm, which I did as a parallel with microcosm or macrocosm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It turns out that it had been independently discovered by some other groups. There is a a nano-architectonics group in Tsukuba, Japan, north of Tokyo, that uh, calls its uh, monthly newsletter nanocosm. And if you Google the word, it comes up in odd and Weird and wonderful places. <laughs> I, meant, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to use it to describe um, cosm, of course, from uh, the Greek word from which we get cosmos, um, means a, a, an ordered uh, universe, something that's uh, sufficient unto itself and obeys its own rules and mm-hmm. is really a, a complete thing of beauty in its own right. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to convey the idea that at the nanoscale, uh, nature behaves like its own little cosmos. So it's a small world after all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, could you tell us what your, uh, your, your book is trying to convey here? I'm trying to do two things, Frank. Uh, first of all, uh, before I can construct in uh, the mind of my fellow citizens what nanotechnology is, I have to deconstruct what it's not. And uh, due to the, the very uh, efficient um, activity of uh, some people over the last 15 or 20 years, the concept of nanotechnology as being the domain of the molecular assembler, the nanobot, has taken root in the public mind. And you see this popping up in all kinds of places. Um, I took my kids to see Agent Cody Banks a while ago, and the enemy wasn't really the villain. The enemy was this ghastly nanotechnology that was being developed. And it involved uh, little catalytic uh, nanobots that could be programmed to uh, dissolve any um, material that you would name from a ceramic to table salt to mm-hmm. metal to human skin. You know, mm-hmm. we did. So this thing is a, a Satan technology. And, and um, in a lot of science fiction, uh, of course, uh, the sober warnings about this stuff running amok have become inflated in a, a kind of a, a splinter group into uh, some really... Um, 
unsound warnings about what might occur. Uh, the molecular assembler isn't something that we will see anytime soon. It's mm -hmm. extremely possible that they will run into what they call uh, structure breakers, uh, that it will prove to be utterly impossible to make such a thing. So I've stayed away from the science fiction aspect of nanotechnology, and I've focused on a logical definition of it as accepted by mainstream science now. I remember there was a speech given by uh, Richard Small a few years ago where he described the concept of assembler in such a way that it would be like a microwave oven where you shove in a pile full of dirt and then out comes a you know, delicious steak. Uh, it's a nice tale, <laughs> but I think Smalley has, uh, you know, <laughs> woken up from this ideological uh, binge with something of a, a hangover and has uh, recanted any such uh, wild speculations. As a matter of fact, uh, among mainstream scientists, he is undoubtedly the most strenuous in his opposition to the groups that um, say that a molecular assembler is just around the corner, that will be able to create a factory the size of a bread box that makes anything we wish, building it atom by atom. So what great hopes do you see for nanotechnology then? I'd say in doing what it's doing, only more of the same. Um, what created nanotechnology, according to the strict scientific definition, uh, was, in my opinion, the new sensing instruments. Uh, they're called microscopes. Uh, they're literally nanoscopes. Mm -hmm. The STN, the scanning tunneling microscope, right. the atomic force microscope. Right. For decades, centuries actually, uh, since Dalton or even Democritus of Athens, uh, it was posited, posited that atoms and molecules should be down there holding up our world, uh, like Atlas in a way. Uh, we knew they had to be there. We could calculate some of their properties. I think mm -hmm. um, as a, uh, an exercise, Einstein once very accurately calculated the diameter of a sugar molecule. Uh, but we couldn't see the things. All of a sudden we can, using quantum effects to image uh, right. what we see at the nanoscale. And not only can we visualize it, but thanks to some of the clumsy operators of the first <laughs> nanoscopes, uh, the STM, who unwittingly ran their, uh, the sensing tips of their instruments into the sample, mm -hmm. we found that we could actually manipulate matter on these very small scales. Right. Um, what that has done is given us a body of scientific knowledge about how the nanocosm behaves, what the rules are in this tiny little realm. And that, in turn, is letting us uh, do things uh, with a security of um, outcome, with a confidence that we've never had before. We can get matter to dance to our tune. Mm -hmm. um, there are those who, who would argue that nanotechnology has been around for a bit longer than that uh, for example, they say that the biotechnology is the wet side of nanotech. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I devote a whole chapter in my book, Nanocosm, to uh, what I call wet nanotech, which is what biology is, really. It's mm -hmm. nanotechnology and aqueous solution. Mm -hmm. But with the new techniques, we can understand even this more accurately and can twiddle and tweak it, um, sometimes improving even on nature. For instance, there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Depankar Sen uh, up at Simon Fraser University near where I live in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's looking at DNA, but he's taking natural DNA, um, altering it slightly and getting it to do different things in the way of uh, automatic synthesis, self-synthesis, that you've never seen in nature.
in your book, you mention a timeline of you know possible innovations that will happen with the development of nanotechnology. Could you briefly mention some of them? Uh, some of them are already here, Frank. Uh-huh. Uh, when we talk about nanotechnology, and, and this is something that surprised even me, I, I thought when I began to research this that, that I'd be looking into the future, but I kept barking my shins on it <laughs> right now. Right. I'll give you one example. Um, yeah, you mentioned uh, what nanotechnology, mm-hmm. the biosciences uh, that have been manipulating atoms and molecules on, right. on a, a large scale for many decades. Um, you could also add to that uh, material science, uh, mm-hmm. metallurgy and it, its derivatives. Um, the thing is, in, uh, in standard material sciences, they've been able to characterize metals extremely well. You get into the eutectic alloys. Um, you can characterize uh, the strengths and the, the failing limits, uh, the thresholds to which we can stress something like the, uh, the turbine blade in a, a, a jet engine. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, but when you look at metals in the nanoscale, you realize uh, why traditional material science has found that the best strength that can get out of a metal is only uh, 10% or so of what the theoretical strength should be. Due to the morphology of the uh, structure, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's full of inclusions and the old popsicle sticks and, Mm -hmm. you know, impurities and cracks. And it really is a mess at the nanoscale. It's like a pile of rubble. And you can do certain things Mm -hmm. with it. All of a sudden, imagine then that with the new nanoscale techniques that we have based on the new scientific information, we can get in there and, for example, lay down nickel atoms exactly in perfect crystalline form. No inclusions, no gaps, no nothing. All of a sudden, you've got a metal that is up at 100% and sometimes even in excess of its full theoretical capability. This is leading a firm uh, called Integrand Technologies to say that it can produce skate blades that never need sharpening, that it can produce uh, armor for an Abrams tank that's an inch and a half thick rather than a foot and a half thick and gives mm. you the same protection, mm. that can make police body armor no thicker than aluminum foil. So how about, say, 10 or 15 years down the line, what, what do you foresee? Uh, there are things that will remain utterly impossible 15 years from now, and I suspect that the molecular assembler, the nanobot, is going to be one of them. There are things that we will scientifically be able to do that run into the shoals of marketing. Mm. Um, Interventions, uh, perhaps uh, catalytic molecules that you can inject into someone's bloodstream that reverse some of the uh, processes of age breakdown, that will be possible, and yet people will have a visceral, deep-seated unwillingness to have any of this stuff injected into their bloodstream. So what can we realistically expect? Um, I'd say within three years, well, it's already begun, but Mm -hmm. uh, very much so within three years, we'll see nanotechnology begin to transform everyday objects from the inside out. It'll make tennis balls that uh, don't lose their bounce characteristics as rapidly. Uh, It will give us um, microscale or even nanoscale computer hardware that's uh, Mm -hmm. far faster, where you can get a logic gate to flop on a single electron instead of a cascade of (laughs) electrons. Yeah, I mean, almost everything will be transformed. Imagine, for instance, um, talk about a domino effect. I mean, the U.S. is in a perpetual energy crisis because the U.S., all of North America, is very, very thirsty for energy. It's got a lot of coal. On the other hand, uh, coal tends to produce some really ghastly... Yes, uh, sulfur oxide. Yeah, exactly. Now, the hotter you burn it, and uh, the faster you can inject a, a slurry, uh, which is finely ground pulverized coal, uh, often an aqueous, uh, I won't call it 
as a solvent because it's not a true solution, but it, it's a mixture. It's crud. But this stuff is so incredibly complex that when you start injecting it into the burner at supersonic speed, it just reams open uh, the hole of any injector nozzle that you've got. But if you could use some of these new metals that are so um, incredibly abrasion-resistant, all of a sudden you could have a key technological invention that permits the U.S. to move far more into burning coal mm. and uh, less into burning oil. If you could also use nanotechnology to produce um, molecular catalysis so that the crud coming out of the smokestack of a mm -hmm. coal-fired plant um, can catalytically have its um, pollution products uh, either broken down into less harmful products, carbon dioxide and water, or else isolated uh, the way an electrostatic precipitator will isolate it, then... <laughs> the, the, the apparently simple things that we're now able to do uh, so well and, and better every day will end up transforming our entire lives in, in ways we can dimly see now. So getting back to some of the uh, moral aspects of nanotechnology, are we opening Pandora's box here? Uh, any comments? I'm a great believer with Thomas Jefferson that uh, he said, I know of no... I'll try and quote this accurately from memory. I know of no safer repository of power than in the hands of the people. Remember, uh, well, you wouldn't remember, I remember <laughs> in the early 1980s, uh, about uh, 20, 25 years ago, when biotechnology was just beginning to emerge from the university labs. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the professors had developed uh, polymerase chain reaction, uh, had developed uh, site-specific right <laughs> immunogenesis. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I... I we're breathing the air that a lot of Nobel laureates have breathed. Harvard University uh, put together a citizens committee uh, involving uh, the professorial representatives and a lot of people, you know, just men and women off the street. And they sat down and de helped develop a set of safety protocols for this new technology that have served us very well since that time. Mm -hmm. I can see a similar thing being done with nanotechnology, and I have great trust in my fellow citizens that they will make it work. What about the whole fear that there could be some renegade scientists in some um, third world country who's has a secret lab to develop some, you know, nasty devices. Well, yeah, somebody in a third world country with a small computer can do some interesting software work. He can do some interesting hacking, perhaps, if he gets access to the web. But nanotechnology is changing so rapidly that, you know, much to the annoyance of, of, of perhaps some of the folks in, in the Pentagon or Defense Department, it's hard to keep it secret. All the researchers in the world are in constant touch with one another. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever is uh, discovered is immediately put out there. Often it bypasses the journals and is put into uh, online posters. Right. So uh, I found uh, even in Japan, Australia, Switzerland, uh, United Kingdom, Canada, you name it, everybody's in close touch with what everybody's doing. And uh, with this new instrument, um, these new uh, nanoscopes such as the STM, um, when Galileo invented the telescope, he found that everywhere he pointed it, uh, he was finding miracles. And when Van Leeuwen invented the microscope, everywhere he pointed that, he was getting miracles. Similar things are happening today. It's everywhere they turn the microscope and look uh, into the nanocosm, they're finding miracles, and you just can't keep that secret. I can't see an isolated lab 
uh, producing some noxious substance or uh, some appalling technique using nanotechnology. I, I found in researching the book, I was very much reassured. In your book, you mentioned uh, some of the work carried out by Drexler. Uh, could you explain what his legacy is? A legacy is a good word, actually. Uh, Dr. Drexler is a uh, formidable intellect. He's a polymath. He has background in engineering and the biosciences. And about 20 years ago, he coined the term nanotechnology, meaning technology on the nanoscale. And uh, 10 years ago, I 11 years ago, came out with a book, Nanosystems, uh, describing in extreme detail uh, what form these machines might make. I mean, he's detailed um, conveyor belts, push rods, abacuses, uh, as well as um, plans for what he calls a stiff-armed uh, nanomanipulator or a molecular assembler. Mm. Uh, it's fascinating reading, but it's midway between science fiction and science fact. Uh, there was recently an article in Wired magazine um, in which uh, the writer said that mainstream science had uh, been able to, to leap ahead and do so much in, uh, now at the nanoscale that it really didn't feel that it needed Dr. Drexler, that they regarded him as the crazy uncle in the attic. <laughs> I, I think that's a little too severe. I've actually been in a very detailed uh, online debate with uh, some of the Drexlerians, and uh, I found them to be fascinating people, very well read. Uh, mm -hmm. But the trouble with making predictions about what's going to happen 15, 20, 50 years from now is the the butterfly in <laughs> Beijing, right? Yeah. Uh, some little thing is going to occur, you right. know, whether it's the invention of the laser or... Uh -huh. Uh, the, the anti-abrasion nozzle that lets us burn coal and tanks the oil industry right. or, uh, that is going to upset uh, long-term predictions like this. I just, the, the problems involved in creating, in, in fact, assembling or getting to self-assemble a molecular assembler are just so staggering that I can't see them being solved anytime soon. So uh, Dr. Drexler has given us some uh, wonderful things to chew about, but I think they're more in the way of, of Zen Cohen's uh, than they are of um, bankable science on which we can build technology. Um, so nanotechnology will certainly involve you know, a lot of biology, chemistry, and physics, but uh, you also mentioned AI and uh, cellular automata as, as concepts which will play a key role in that. Uh, could you explain that a little bit more? It's my premise in nanocosm that you can't address this wonderful self-contained world exactly as you would the elements on your kitchen counter that you're going to use to bake a cake. You can't build a molecular assembler or a super strong metal exactly as you would uh, rivet together the Bay Bridge. You have to use different techniques. Uh, Mr. Atkinson, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about your book or about nanotechnology? The more I look into it, the more fascinating it is. Uh, the book can't be a compendium. It can't be uh, seen as, you know, the final answer. It's a snapshot. And all I was trying to do is to give some idea of what nanotechnology is in the hands and minds and labs of the, of the best people in the world mm -hmm. and some idea of what it's not and where it may go in future. Well, Mr. Atkinson, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. My pleasure. And we were just talking to William Atkinson on his new book, Nanocosm. Mr. Atkinson is a science writer and he's also a director of Draco Communications. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM.
Coming up, find out how blisters are formed, so stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Rocks, and here's Herr Dr. Professor Einstein with the answer to last week's question of the week. Yeah, thank you very much, Frank. There's, where's the answer to last week's question of the week? What causes a blister? Ah! You know, these blisters, they hurt very bad, and I don't know what it causes it. But I looked and I looked and I found out, yeah. So what happens is that the skin, yeah, it comes off of the, the skin layer, and so there's little bits of water getting trapped underneath, and that causes the little pussiness and craziness, and so it gets all callousy, and that's what causes the blister. Okay, and now here is a Tokyo Kid with uh, this week's uh, question of the week. In Japan, we have uh, many, many wonderful drinks like uh, Calpis and uh, Pocari Sweat. But in America, you have uh, Coca-Cola and it gives everyone a little buzz. What causes this buzz? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grogs at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might feel just a little bit more wired. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. 